1: This is New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Nico Mealy, who's the author of The End of Big, How the Internet Makes David the New Goliath. This is his new book from St. Martin's Press. I hope that you enjoy today's interview. Nico, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get started with your interesting book, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are now, um, before we uh, you know, get into the, the meat of the book.
0: Sure. These days, I'm an adjunct lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School, part of the Shorenstein Center for the Study of Press Politics and Public Policy, and I teach a couple of classes. One is on, uh, it's called Media Politics and Power in the Digital Age, and it's just something of a survey course with some core concepts that are important to understand about technology, and then looking at the application of those concepts across uh, the media, politics, and policymaking. And I teach another class which is really a deep dive into the impact of technology on political campaigns in the United States.
1: You know, and, and this book that you've written um, so clearly draws both on your sort of big picture scholarly take on these subjects, but also on your firsthand experiences, some of them that I'd like to talk about. Um, you begin your book um, with... Uh, your own introduction to connectivity while your family lived in Malaysia. I wonder if you could recount this story of, the, of your experience with the early days of bulletin boards and dial-up networks, and some of your friends that had some you know, very early access to this. What we count now is very matter of fact.
0: Sure. Uh, my father was a U.S. Foreign Service officer, and I was I grew up outside the United States. I was actually born in Africa. But we always lived in, you know, expatriate communities, part of the U.S. Embassy. And, um, you know, when I was living in Malaysia, uh, the Internet had not got, I was in high school, I was in high school in Malaysia in the uh, early 90s. The Internet had not arrived there yet. Um, It actually arrived while I was there. But at first, when I first got there, the Internet had not arrived. But there there, there were these things called bulletin board systems, BBSs. And uh, most frequently, these were run by um, by high school kids, who, after their parents would go to sleep, they would turn off the ringers on the phones. They would unplug one of the phones and plug it into the back of their computer, and turn their family computer, their family PC, into a um, into a dial-up online community. And so, someone would dial in and leave a message and then hang up, and then someone else would dial in and leave a message and hang up, and it was, um, it seems so quaint and ancient now, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's how it worked, is there was this server that that really was someone's home computer that got turned into a server from like 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., and people would just dial in all night, and I had, uh, I had one of these automatic dialers, and so you would just, Keep dialing BBSs until you found one that wasn't busy, and then you could get in and talk to your friends online and swap things uh software and other things and a lot of tech support went on helped me figure out how to do this that or the other thing and um and you know sometimes someone would 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 uh would forget to do it, forget to turn off the ringer and so uh, someone, you, your computer would dial in to make the connection, but you hear a human being pick up, all angry, who's waking them up at two o'clock in the morning. And then, sometime, I also remember the day that someone got um, two phone lines to their server, so two people could simultaneously be online at once. It was an exceptional day, and that was kind of my early introduction into the online community. Was this uh, was this late night world uh, that was asynchronous. It was just for a young nerd, tremendously exciting, and then and then we started to hear rumors that the internet was coming, and um, it turns out that the um, that the 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 internet uh, the the Malaysian government helped bring the internet to uh, to Malaysia, and uh, uh, after a little while, at first it was really only institutional subscriptions, but they opened it up to personal subscriptions. And you could get a personal subscription to the Internet, which involved using your ancient modem to dial into the, uh to, the, to the, 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 the headquarters of the Internet in Malaysia, which is called Jaring. And um, at Jaring, they, I don't remember how many phone lines they had, but less than a dozen. And so you could still get a busy signal while trying to dial up into the Internet if it was a very busy time. Um, and of course, as demand grew, it, it got harder and harder to, di- to dial in. Yeah, you know, and,
1: and I just I think that's just one of the really nice aspects of, of of your book. And there's been some others. You know, these technologies we now understand so much in terms of 500 software engineers working somewhere in California, and, and this, you know, when you describe it, point. I think it's just you know it's, it's so indicative of of that time period. Um,
0: we well, you, know, relates- you know, one thing I would say is that. You know, a BBS, a BBS, just like the ones I was on in Malaysia, there was one in the San Francisco Bay Area called The Well, which became tremendously powerful in shaping our our culture, our technological culture and the development of companies, but also, in a broader sense, our true culture. And, you know, I think of, I think of everything from uh, Google Groups to BuzzFeed to... Um, Facebook is in some ways derivative or, or part of what what started with is like The Well.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that idea of culture because one of the points you make, and I think one of the real interesting parts of the book, is is about the, the belief system of the Internet pioneers and, and the ethos that ran through, and some of this is, is predating. We're talking much more about the 1970s and 80s. Um, but I wonder... Um, and it very much relates to how we regulate and how we think about the Internet today. But, so who were these pioneers, and, and what, was their, what was their ethos? What was their belief system? Because it so clearly relates to much of your thesis.
0: Well, you know, I think, here's how I think about it. In 1970, if I asked you to describe a computer, and assuming that you even knew what a computer was, you would describe something to me that was giant that would fill, fill 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 a large bedroom suite and probably cost north of five million bucks and was really only accessible to big institutions. Computers were big. They were expensive. They were both expensive to buy and expensive to maintain. And the only people that had them were big universities and big companies and, of course, big government. And the way people thought about computers is that you would drop a hard problem off with a computer, and you'd come back later, a day later, a week later, a month later, and the computer would have solved this hard problem for you. And today, we have these very personal devices. They're not at all institutional. And we don't think of them as places that you drop off a problem like dry cleaning and come pick it up later. We think of them as things that, uh, that are extensions of our ability. Right. And that's not an accident that in, you know, if you were a computer scientist, the first computer science program in the country was in 1960 and Purdue University at Purdue University. And um, if you were interested in computers and you spent the decade of the 60s on college campuses in the middle of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the notion uh, the notion that you'd get a degree in computer science and then go work for IBM, where you had to wear a tie every day, or the Pentagon, that rubbed some of the nerds of the time wrong. They 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 saw computers and especially institutional computers as something that um, that it, it, as something very powerful, but very dangerous if it stayed in the hands of institutions. That. You know, institutions had led us awry and leading us to the Vietnam War, and why would we let them hold on to this computing power? And so, there was a fairly explicit movement to push computing power away from institutions to individuals. It was not the only movement of the time, but it was a substantial one. One that people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs grew out of that movement. and And Part of it was a very explicit, you know, stick it to the man. Don't let the man have computing power. Make it the personal computer. That's a radical way to hold power accountable: is to make computing power personal. And you can you can see that in a, in in the in a range of in the advertising and the language in the approach to computers that has broadly informed our culture is this dramatic diffusion of power from kind of centralized institutional machines to in, in, intimate personal devices we carry today. And that, that has consequences for our politics, that diffusion of power.
1: Yeah, which very much brings us to forward to the late 1990s, early 2000s, and, and some of your experiences. You weren't initially working directly in politics, um, but you were working sort of around the edges of politics, but you describe in the book this, this experience you have with the early Howard Dean campaign. Um, so, so what happened at this ethics lounge that, that not only you've written about, others have written about, um, but, but what happened just, not just to you but to the, the others, the hundreds of others that unexpectedly showed up for this meetup and, and, and something special happened at that time period. Um, so what, what happened? What was the environment, what was the atmosphere going on in that time period that, that drew you so, so powerfully to the, to the Dean campaign?
0: It was a decade ago. Howard Dean announced he was running for president. His formal announcement was June 23rd, ten years ago. So we're at the ten-year mark, and it was—it uh, is in some ways hard to recover what that time was like. There were huge protests in the United States and globally against the Iraq War. There was—and uh, the, and the, and there was the um, there was an intense. Feeling of um, anger and uh, and frustration with establishment politics, in particular, you know, with George W. Bush, but also with all the Democrats who had voted against, uh, who, who had voted with Bush, voted with, with Bush to authorize the the war in Iraq, despite significant, you might say, overwhelming, at least in the Democratic Party, opposition. Uh, And so, the, um, you know, here we are in the Democratic primary season, a lot of big names in the Democratic Party running for president, John Kerry, Joe Lieberman, John Edwards, Dick Gephardt, you know, minority Mm -hmm. leader for so long in Congress, very big names in the Democratic Party running for president, but all of them based out of Washington, D.C., all of them on the record in favor of the war in Iraq, and there was this. There was a sense among among Democrats that uh, in the field among grassroots Democrats that you know something was really amiss with the Democratic Party that it was um, was not listening to its base. It was you know captured by inside the Beltway thinking and 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 even by special interests. And there was a great deal of frustration. And so in in that environment, this guy Howard Dean, governor of Vermont. Um who I think initially wasn't gonna you know what he cared about was health care he's a medical doctor and had been in family practice with his wife that was a that was his animating interest in the presidential campaign, but he was also against the iraq war and that that became a um that became a real powerful uh powerful moment in 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 the in in the history the political history of that year in particular there was something called the winter. DNC meeting in 2003 and um, the winter meeting is like a regular gathering Howard Dean up until Howard Dean been running for president informally at, a, at an exploratory committee for I, I don't remember exactly but about a year but he wasn't far from my household name and even among Democratic activists he was not really on the radar and he goes into this winter meeting of Democrats and Democratic activists and he gives a rousing fire-breathing speech uh, with with a reoccurring line, uh, whatever happened to the democratic wing of the Democratic Party? Echoing Paul Wellstone, I'm here to represent the democratic wing of the Democratic Party. And he goes through this litany of issues from healthcare to the Iraq War, where where the traditional establishment leaders of the Democratic Party had, in a sense, abandoned grassroots positions, liberal grassroots positions. And the crowd just went nuts, and within um within hours it was going viral online and You have to understand going on viral going viral online in an era that predates YouTube and really predates video on the internet entirely. People were surreptitiously sharing the you know m p three and wave files. Mm-hmm. It, which were giant downloads in that day and age, and there were lots of blog posts about it, and it just created an enormous kind of grassroots swell. And that was about the same time that I joined the uh, the campaign. And part of that swell was um, there were the there was this new relatively new fledgling company meetup, and there were um, a, a guy Jerome Armstrong uh, had. Um, actually not clear at this point if he started the Dean meetups or just noticed them and poured gasoline on the fire. But he really, he was a blogger. He had a blog, mydd that was very popular with Democratic activists. And um, he really pumped up the Dean meetups. And so after a couple of relatively successful Dean meetups, Howard Dean decides to go to a meetup. So he goes to the Dean meetup first Wednesday of every month. Um, he goes to the Dean meetup in Manhattan at the Essex Lounge, Essex, Uh, lounge and grill, I think. And I was working in uh, New York, not in anything even remotely really political. And a friend of mine at work said, you like politics. You should really hear this guy, Howard Dean. He's going to be, um, he's going to be speaking at this meetup. And so I go to the Essex uh, lounge to hear him speak. And, um, and I can't get in. There's a line out the door. Uh, you know, it felt at the time like it was hundreds of people couldn't get in, and as you say, I kind of been on that on the edges of politics, and I knew enough about politics, politics to know that was pretty unusual to have a uh, governor running for president that you know people are are, are desperate to hear speak, desperate, and so uh, that made me very curious, and I uh, went home and I googled Howard Dean. And I I couldn't find his website. I couldn't really find out very much about him at all. There was stuff on some of the liberal blogs like Daily Coast, MyDD, D Smirking Chimp, Liberal Oasis, um Atrios. But there there wasn't really very much about him. And I um I ended up uh I ended up finally finding his website. It was not, you know, Dean for President or Dean two thousand four or any of the things you might guess, it was deanforamerica.com. And uh, I found the website, and I bought it on my own dime, a Google search ad, so that when people Googled Howard Dean or variants of that, it said, the official website of Howard Dean. Click here. And And at this point, you weren't formally uh, a part of of the campaign. No way, shape, uh, or form. I had shown up at this event and couldn't get in and went home curious. That was it. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, uh, and so I decided that, you know, my little my little gesture to help the little guy, the underdog, I buy these Google ads. And then a couple of weeks later, I, and I forgot about, I honestly just forgot about how I did. then a couple of weeks later, I get this giant charge on my credit card bill. And so I go and look at the Google AdWords, and it had just, skyrocketed it was it was it was you know logarithmic every day just dramatically increased search volume over the day before and so I called up the campaign and I said um, you know I can't really afford to do this anymore but you guys should really do it and this woman on the I had to wait on hold forever first of all and then when I finally talked to somebody it was this woman Zephyr Teachout who subsequently became a good friend and she said well, no one here really knows how to do that. And so if you want to do that, you have to move here and do it.
1: (laughs) And here was not D.C. or was not? Burlington, Vermont.
0: Burlington, Vermont. And I said, oh, well, you know, you offered me a job. And she said, no. Plenty of people working here as volunteers. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to move there. But then then I ended up – Kind of a longer story, but the abbreviated version is: ten days later, I quit my job, moved to Vermont, and said, "Oh well, shoot, I'll give this a try." And I, and
1: this, yeah, this is just not a regular campaign. I mean, in addition to the enthusiasm and and the candidate, um, there were all of these special things going on. And and Joe Trippi was at the sort of the the top, um, as you described, he became obsessed with some of these technologies that you were at the center of. Um, and, and you write that he was obsessed with email acquisition, for instance. Um, so, what was this obsession he had with email acquisition, and and how does this relate to what you actually, you know, signed up to do in, in Vermont as you travel up there from what I'm sure was a well-paying job in Manhattan and, and giving up all of those things to, to go volunteer for this this campaign? I. Th-
0: So there was, you know, in many, Joe Trippi wrote a blog post uh, in um, that spring, spring of 2003, titled The Perfect Storm. And uh, he actually wrote it on the unofficial Howard Dean blog, kind of a gathering place for activists. And that's a pretty good metaphor for describing the Dean campaign, the perfect storm, the right candidate at the right time with the right campaign manager, and the right technology, just all kind of came together for dramatic impact. Um, And in particular, it was disruptive to traditional American politics. You know, the model in American politics is that you raise a lot of money, mostly in $2,000 checks from major donors, and you use it to buy a bunch of television ads. And so if you don't have a well-established network of major donors willing to show out 2000 bucks head to have breakfast lunch or dinner with you, you struggle to raise the money to be competitive, you know, with field work and with television. And you can see the last decade of American politics as a as a dramatic Restructuring of the established political wisdom on all fronts, on the fundraising front, on the, and this holds true for Democrats and Republicans, on the fundraising front, on the television as a primary mode of persuasion front, on the field front, across all of these, across the core pillars of American political campaigns uh we've seen really dramatic changes as to the established wisdom. And I'm not sure there's entirely new wisdom established yet. <laughs> but but the old wisdom is definitely um not uh still worth still still has impact and value, but not nearly in the way it used to. And you know uh and so a, a lot of this started we saw started on the Dean campaign, right? And one of the primary ways we start, start was with politics, was with uh, online fundraising. And in many ways, what the Dean campaign did with online fundraising was not innovative. It was really copying what moveon.org had been doing for, um, by the time of the Dean campaign, you know, five or six years. Um, and But it had never been done by a political candidate. And it turns out that when a political candidate can... Speak directly to people online with force and power, and and in a compelling way, it it can really it can really snowball and generate an intense amount of uh, of activity, engagement, and and of course money. And so, um, you know, here I am on the Dean campaign, kind of joined it by accident. And I soon have the campaign manager, Joe Trippi, breathing down my neck about email acquisition. And, um, and and you know, Joe would quiz me on what MoveOn was doing to see he was paying very close attention. He just wanted to see if I was paying close attention, you know, to try and figure out how you could both grow a big email list and then fundraise from it. Because if you could successfully figure out how to develop a, fund, a small-dollar fundraising base outside of the establishment without the significant sunk cost of direct mail, you, you could really have a breakthrough moment as a underdog candidate. And so the goal of the Dean Campaign, the playbook, was to run as an underdog, to... Um, Because we didn't have the money or the time to grow a big direct mail small dollar list, and because we didn't have the Rolodex or the, or the relationships to raise money from major donors, our only choice really was to make online fundraising work. And, and that, that boiled down to a chaotic, a chaotic, uh, a chaotic lunatic speed at which you're trying to fit all the pieces together, learn things on the fly, copy the old model but improve on it.
1: Yeah. And and you know, the the Dean campaign didn't didn't um win in sort of the formal sense, but the, the Dean campaign idea certainly won subsequent to, to the title, he didn't win the nomination, but 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 him as a candidate stayed with the country and and had these changes that are very much inherent in the, the title and the thesis of your book, the end of big. So what did the campaign do to the big Democratic Party? You, you talked about a couple of things that, that it introduced, but you know, to, to sort of take seriously this, the thesis of your book, we would have to observe change. So what are those, what are those changes that, that you're able to point to that, that support this thesis, that the, the end is big, that, that smallness um, is able to play in a way that perhaps it wasn't in the past?
0: going into 2007 we had Hillary Clinton right Hillary Clinton was the perceived front runner if you go back and read in the fall of 2006 all of the press about the race and even even really into the fall of 2007 almost right up to the Iowa caucus The press is about how Hillary is unbeatable. She's going to walk away with this. And there was good reason to think that. Hillary Clinton had been an active part of presidential politics in the Democratic Party for her entire adult life, going back to college. She had been married to one of the most popular Democrats in American history, Bill Clinton. To a large extent, the modern Democratic Party was built by Bill and Hillary Clinton, and so it was a foregone conclusion that she could win the nomination. And I like to say, she had kissed every Democratic baby in the country. She knew every major donor's first name and their grandchildren's names. Like, Hillary's life was the Democratic Party. And yet, she was beaten by a man who'd been in public life less than a decade, who had none. Of the advantages of Rolodex and history and connections and experience in American politics and this is really unthinkable but, I mean today we forget what this was like in 07 but this was unthinkable that that Barack Obama could defeat Hillary Clinton and yet this insurgent outsider obliterates the establishment and manages to become uh, president of the United States, and I think that that trend is not only true of that 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 narrative of the insurgent being able to use this technology that empowers individuals to challenge the institution, to challenge the establishment, you know, to build relationships and paths outside of the establishment of the Democratic Party. Does that narrative uh, holds true outside of the traditional, uh, outside of the Democratic Party? And you can see it at work right now in the Republican Party. You can see the way the Tea Party raises money and organizes insurgent candidates outside of the, the vehicles and process of the establishment in, in a success, frequently successful way. That, in the case of the Tea Party, is arguably quite damaging to. The party's national uh, chances, but the role of a insurgent in American politics. You know, the, there's an academic book by um, uh, Ron Rappaport and Walt Stone called "Three's a Crowd" that looks lot, that looks at the role of the of uh, the pro candidacy and how it shaped the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And there is this kind of history in the academic research of the insurgent or the independent exerting pressure on the party to move it in, in directions. And so an insurgent or independent candidacy can, certainly has impact, but it's almost unprecedented for for an insurgent or independent candidacy to actually win, to actually defeat the establishment. And yet in the last three election cycles, that's becoming increasingly commonplace.
1: And, you know, your book is... is um is about much more than just just politics, and the same thesis um, about the destabilizing effect of, of the internet and technology on big institutions goes across from government to press to press and business. Um, but you know, just you're very much a technology enthusiast, but you aren't altogether comfortable with this trend. Um, and I think some of the more interesting writing in the book is about you trying to negotiate these what's at stake. So what's wrong with the end of big? um what's what are the risks what are the whats what's on the table um when we're not just talking about sort of the positive side here
0: well you know the narrative of my argument is really about um is really about the both the dramatic di- diffusion of power that technology provides you know the technology technology has this transfer from technology has transferred power from institutions to individuals that's half of the story the other half of the story is the way that our technology the way sorry the way that our institutions have done a bad job and so if half of the story is about the role of technology of pushing the power from institutions to individuals the other half is how the institutions haven't really done a good job in the intervening years anyway they've They've kind of grown away from some of their core values, and and that, that, that creates incentives and opportunities for people to use this incredibly empowering technology, to opt out. And sometimes that's really enormously exciting. I see great opportunity in that. That's, like, awesome in many ways. But sometimes that's a little scary, that our institutions are built on core values that are hard won, that were at least conceived with some careful thought, and when we when we lose them, when we lose them, I worry about what what gets thrown out with the bathwater. A good example of this is in this, the second chapter, is about big news about journalism. I don't think technology destroyed newspapers. I think for the for the most part, corporate consolidation and publicly traded companies and the pressure to increase profit margins had a substantial impact on destroying journalism, and, or at least destroying newspapers. Uh, and then technology provided alternatives. You know, when the product wasn't that great in these newspapers, people looked for alternatives and they looked for other opportunities. And that is, broadly speaking, good. But at the end of the day, in our democracy, you know, journalism is performing kind of a core function of holding power accountable you know the accountability journalism the investigative journalism that's so crucial and in the absence of that um in the absence of that institution of the of newspapers i worry about how we're going to provide real accountability to power how we hold power accountable it's 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 hard
1: it's very hard yeah, I really enjoyed the book. Um, and the book is the book out. Oh yeah, out yeah. of the okay. shelves okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, about three weeks. Yeah, so, so the book is out. I'm sure that it's starting to sell well. What's next for you? Is is another book on your horizon, or is a dip back into the world of practitioner politician on your horizon? What's What's the next thing on on your list? Ha! Huh,
0: that's a great question. Um,
1: I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> I would not
0: immediately uh, say uh, that I'm going to write another book without consulting with my wife. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny, actually, the whole process of writing a book in the digital age. I mean, you know, there's this kind of fundamental question that in some sense the size, the, the shape and size of our books is dictated by printing, right? And all of the mechanics and limitations and opportunities and deficiencies provided by paper. And so in the digital age, what is the purpose of writing a book or even conceiving of something as a book? And I can say I really found it a useful way to clarify what I think, um, and that certainly excites me about the opportunity to do it again. These days I um, I split my time between uh, teaching at the Kennedy School and uh, running my consulting firm, Echo Ditto. And, uh, what I, what I love most is, is teaching, is talking about some of these issues, is trying to help people, help non-nerds, non-technical people understand and think about the implications of this technology, and try and help nerds and technical people think about the roles and values of these institutions that have such a powerful effect on our lives. I, I think there's a growing gap between the direction of our technology and our social fabric and social contract and the nature and direction of our institutions. And that, that gap worries me and is one that I'm, I'm anxious and excited to try and bridge.
1: Yeah, well, I enjoyed the book a lot. I can uh, strongly recommend it to anyone interested, Both, not just in politics, but also some of these, um, these other related issues. Because the author of The End of Big, How the Internet Makes uh, David the New Goliath, published by St. Martin's Press uh, just recently. is available widely. Nico, thank you very much for your time today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm, Ni- I'm Nico on Twitter, NICCO, if anyone wants to chat.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks.